Christ Jesus our Lord. Behold, the Lord comes with might, and his arm rules for him. Behold, his reward is with him, and his recompense before him. Let us pray. Almighty God, who is and was and is to come, with expectant hearts, we, your people, await Christ's coming. As once he came in humility, so now may he come in glory, that he may make all things perfect in your everlasting kingdom. For he is Lord forever and ever, to whom along with you, O Father, and the Holy Spirit, be honor and dominion now and forever. Amen. Our first hymn is number 198, Lift Up Your Heads, Ye Mighty Gates. When the Lord Jesus Christ comes, he will bring to light the things now hidden in darkness and will disclose the purposes of the heart. Therefore, in the light of Christ, let us confess our sins, knowing 
that with his judgment, he also brings his grace and redemption. Let us pray together. Most holy God, who searches the hearts of all people and separates the wheat from the chaff, we confess that we have rebelled against you and committed such sin that we have loved ourselves more than our neighbors and have dishonored and rebelled against you and your holy laws. We bring nothing to you but await your salvation, who is Jesus Christ, born in Bethlehem, but now shall come with lightning and fire to separate the wicked from the righteous. Come, O King, and save us. Give us grace to cast away the works of darkness and to put on the armor of light, now in the time of this mortal life, in which your Son came to us in great humility, that on the last day, when he shall come again in his glorious majesty to judge the living and the dead, we may rise to the life immortal. In the name of Jesus Christ, amen. Please stand for the assurance of pardon. Christ was revealed in the flesh, proclaimed among the nations, and believed in throughout the world. He has reconciled us to God, and he is our peace. Dear people of God in Jesus Christ, I declare to you that all those who have faith in him and do repent of their sin are truly forgiven of all their sin. This is the good news of the gospel, and as we hear it over and over again, we say, praise be to God. Beloved children of God, hear the words of the apostle. Once you were darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Walk as children of light. For the fruit of light is found in all that is good and right and true. And try to learn what is pleasing to the Lord. Take no part in the unfruitful works of darkness, but instead expose them. For it is a shame even to speak of the things that they do in secret. But when anything is exposed by the light, it becomes visible. For anything that becomes visible is light. Therefore, it is said, Awake, O sleeper, and arise from the dead, and Christ will give you light. One of the great themes of Advent, and, and uh, particularly with, with Christmas and Epiphany after that, is the coming of the light of God into the world. It's the language of John chapter 1, the, the beginning of the Gospel of John. Jesus is the light, and he comes into the world, the darkness of the world. And as you listen to the carols, which technically you shouldn't listen to Christmas carols until Christmas arrives, but whatever, we all hear them. Um, many of them bring out the fact that um, this world is dark and the light of Christ coming into it. And it's not just a, an intellectual light. It's, it's a light of holiness. It's a light of making things right. It's a light of God's judgment and forgiveness. And um, it's a gospel light. And so as we hear that, let us rejoice and be glad for our Lord who has come. And as we listen to the apostle, let us be fruitful in exposing the, the things of darkness, being willing to admit them about ourselves, but also um, pursuing the things that are good and right and, um, and the things that are about the Christian life and following Jesus Christ. This is God's will for us in Christ, and let us say, Amen. Our hymn is number 194, O Come, O Come, Emmanuel. Oh, come, oh, come, Emmanuel. 
captive Israel that mourns in lonely exile here until the Son of God appear. Rejoice, rejoice, Emmanuel shall come to Let us pray in intercession for this world and for the church. Let us pray. Most merciful and faithful God, we thank you for hearts set free to praise you. You have set our hearts and tongues and minds, our whole life, free to praise you. 
You rescue us from the power of sin, and you've given us the gift of your beloved Son who takes away the sin of the world and makes your creation glorious, which means that we are part of that glorious new creation through faith in him. And even now as we await the second advent of our Savior, we give you thanks and praise, and we offer you our prayers in the full confidence that your salvation comes to set free the captives and save your people. Hear us now as we call out to you. O God, you are the victorious Lord. You are victorious from the beginning. Forgive us, O God, for doubting that and for often slipping into thinking that you have accomplished nothing and that this world is in defeat. You sent your Son, who appeared to the nations in humility and power, and that is why the pride of rulers and governments cause us to shake our heads. We cry out with your church, Come, Lord Jesus, come. See, O God, the conflict of the nations, the misery of millions who were tyrannized by wicked and unjust leaders. We pray for the people who suffer in Ukraine and Palestine and Israel, North Korea, Iran, and other places. We pray that their misery would be relieved, not with good intentions, not with with, uh, very lopsided policies, but with better governments and economies that create sustainable jobs and safe living conditions and um, peaceful societies. Hear our prayers for the nations in this world. With your Holy Son ruling over us, we pray without partisan feelings. We do not take political sides in these things, but we pray with a desire for peace and justice for the people in this land, for the nation of the United States of America. So, We bring our petitions for those who govern us, for our president, for our senators, our representatives, for our governor, Gretchen Whitmer, for the justices of our courts. And we pray that good policies would come forth by the direction of your gracious hand, even in the midst of the foolishness and lust for power that is common in in, uh, those who rule over us. Here are concerns about immigration policies and justice for the poor and the weak and disordered sexual desires, charity between men and women, the shootings in our cities, anti-Semitism, other concerns that come to mind. Here are our prayers. Our prayers are made with the multitude of your people around this world who confess that in you, O Lord, do we seek refuge, and we are not put to shame. We join in that chorus with your church. Your promised Savior, Jesus Christ, has come to us, and in him we are joined into one body. We pray for the well-being of the church. We pray for the repentance of the church. We pray for the community of Christ's people to have a compassion for sinners without condoning sin and for your grace to transcend the barriers of politics and society so that we may testify to the world of the salvation of Jesus Christ. May your spirit give to us such an awareness of ourselves that we repent of trying to conform the Christian faith and worship and life to the world around us. Yes, we must bring that faith and life and worship into the different cultures and nations and yet do so in a way that maintains the integrity of the Christian life and worship and all of that and faith based on your word. 
Instead, may we make known your great and mighty deeds of salvation to the nations according to the gospel. Here are prayers for the church that we, um, of which we are a part. And as Mary saying of your regard for her low estate, so you regard our low estate in weakness, sickness, pain, and trouble. Hear us, O Lord, in body. Heal us, O Lord, in body and soul. Rejuvenate our faith in you. Give us the means to care for one another. And so we bring our prayers to you for Frida and Eduardo and Shirley, for Bob and Fawn, for Jeff and Linda, for Tammy and her family, for Amy and her family, for Becky and Susan, Jane, Barbara, Karen, Angie, Phil, Bob, Tom, Dominique, and others who come to mind that we bring to you now. Shine forth, O God, in your glorious sun to dispel the clouds of doom and sadness that cast their shadows upon us. May his light give us joy and peace. The sun of righteousness, as it says in Malachi, rising in the east who burns away the fog of sin and warms the coldness of the world, who warms our very hearts with your glorious redemption. To you, the one true God, we offer our prayers in the name of Jesus Christ, who taught us to pray, saying, Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our debts, as we forgive our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom, and the power, and the glory forever. Amen. Let us present our gifts and offerings to the Lord. Thank you. 
please be seated and join as we pray for uh, the, God's illumination on our reading this morning. Oh, Heavenly Father, we thank you that throughout the ages you have comforted your people with your word. Uh, with Adam and Abraham and others, you talked directly. And um, with the ancient Israelites, you spoke through prophets and through judges. And for us, you have your word collected in the Bible. And um, throughout the ages, that has provided hope to people when they needed it. And we thank you for that, and we pray as we enter this time of Advent, this season of hopeful expectation um, and great joy, uh, that you would uh, fill us with hope and joy in our reading of your word this morning. Please open our hearts and ears to hear and to understand and to rejoice in what we hear. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. Our Old Testament reading comes from Isaiah, chapter 64, verses 1 through 9. Oh, that you would rend the heavens and come down, that the mountains might quake at your presence, as when fire kindles brushwood and the fire causes water to boil, to make your name known to your adversaries, and that the nations might tremble at your presence. When you did awesome things that we did not look for, you came down, the mountains quaked at your presence. From of old, no one has heard or perceived by the ear. No eye has seen a God besides you, who acts for those who wait for him. You meet him who joyfully works righteousness, those who remember you in your ways. Behold, you were angry, and we sinned. In our sins, we have been a long time. And shall we be saved? We have all become like one who is unclean, and all our righteous deeds are like a polluted garment. We all fade like a leaf, and our iniquities, like the wind, take us away. There is no one who calls upon your name, who rouses himself to take hold of you. For you have hidden your face from us, and have made us melt in the hands of our iniquities. But now, O Lord, you are our Father. We are the clay, and you are our potter. We are all the work of your hand. Be not so terribly angry, O Lord, and remember not iniquity forever. Behold, please look, we are all your people. Our Psalter response comes from Psalm 80. Give ear, O shepherd of Israel. You who are enthroned upon the cherubim, shine forth. Stir up your might. Restore us, O God. O Lord God of hosts, you have fed them with the bread of tears. You make us an object of contention for our neighbors. Restore us, O God of hosts. But let your hand be on the man of your right hand. Then we shall not turn back from you. Restore us, O Lord God of hosts. 
Our epistle reading comes from 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 3 through 9. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. I give thanks to my God always for you because of the grace of God that was given you in Christ Jesus, that in every way you were enriched in him in all speech and all knowledge, even as the testimony about Christ was confirmed among you, so that you are not lacking in any spiritual gift as you wait for the revealing of our Lord Jesus Christ, who will sustain you to the end, guiltless in the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. God is faithful, by whom you were called into the fellowship of his Son, Jesus Christ our Lord. Finally, our gospel reading this morning comes from the gospel of Mark, chapter 13. Verses 24 through 37. But in those days, after that tribulation, the sun will be darkened, and the moon will not give its light, and the stars will be falling from heaven, and the powers in the heavens will be shaken, and then they will see the Son of Man coming in clouds with great power and glory. And then he will send out the angels and gather his elect from the four winds, from the ends of the earth to the ends of heaven. From the fig tree learn its lesson. As soon as its branch becomes tender and puts out leaves, you know that summer is near. So also, when you see these things taking place, you know that he is near at the very gates. Truly I say to you, this generation will not pass away until all these things take place. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will not pass away. But concerning that day or that hour, no one knows, not even the angels in heaven, nor the Son, but only the Father. Be on guard, keep awake, for you do not know when the time will come. It is like a man going on a journey when he leaves home and puts his servants in charge, each with his work, and commands the doorkeeper to stay awake. Therefore, stay awake, for you do not know when the master of the house will come, in the evening or at midnight or when the rooster crows or in the morning, lest he come suddenly and find you asleep. And what I say to you, I say to all, stay awake. The word of the Lord. Our gospel lesson in Mark begins with an apocalyptic narrative. It tells us of the coming of Jesus Christ and how things will end for this world. Now, the writings of the New Testament are full of apocalyptic, apocalyptic imagery and language. And when we hear the word apocalyptic with the Bible, we usually think of the writings like Revelation, 2 Peter, Jude. Um, that, that, uh, that's what we usually associate with apocalyptic. These come, um, they come in the first century apocalyptic style. There was a particular style in the first century um, that was apocalyptic. However, this kind of style shows up in all of the writings, and it's here in Mark 13. The apocalyptic imagery and language builds off of some of the language of the Old Testament prophets. That's sort of a, a resource for the apocalyptic style of the first century. 
um, for the Jewish apocalyptic style. It would draw off of the prophets and their language. Not that the prophets were uh, actually apocalyptic, or at least for the most part their style wasn't so much an apocalyptic style, it was a prophetic kind of style. But even so, um, the, the first century type of writing like that drew off of them. Prophets like Daniel, Zechariah, Isaiah... Um, but by the time of the first century, it had become its own distinct style. It wasn't so much a pro- pro- style of the prophets as a style called apocalyptic. Prophetic language, like what Isaiah says in our Old Testament lesson, is the kind of thing that, that uh, the apocalyptic style of the New Testament would draw on. Like the verse that says, Oh, that you would rend the heavens and come down, that the mountains might quake at your presence, as when fire kindles brushwood and the fire causes water to boil, to make your name known to your adversaries and that the nations might tremble at your presence. It's not, this is not really apocalyptic language, but it does uh, fuel it. It does add to it, and it is drawn um, one of those kinds of uh, the kind of language that's drawn into apocalyptic style. Jewish writers developed the apocalyptic kind of writing in the last few hundred years before Jesus' birth. So around 300, 200 in that period BC, it began to be become into its own. And then by the time of the first century of Jesus' birth, after Jesus' birth, it had become its own style. Now, Jewish writers used apocalyptic style in their way, and one example is First Enoch, which is actually quoted in Jude, um, but First Enoch was a Jewish writing written around 250, 250 B.C., and in the first chapter it says, this is an apocalyptic style, Jewish, it says, All shall be smitten with fear, and the watchers shall quake, and great fear and trembling shall seize them unto the ends of the earth. And the high mountains will be shaken, and the high hills shall be made low, and shall melt like wax before the flame. And the earth shall be wholly rent in sunder, and all that is upon the earth shall perish. And there will be a judgment upon all men, but with the righteous he will make peace, and will protect the elect, and mercy shall be upon them. And you can hear a little bit of those kinds of words and phrases that are used in the New Testament. Another is Second Esdras, which was probably written in the first century when the church began, so after Jesus' birth. And here are a couple lines from it. And the, the sun shall suddenly shine forth at night and the moon during the day. Blood shall drip from wood and the stone shall utter its voice. The people shall be troubled and the stars shall fall. Now we go, oh yeah, I recognize that kind of language. That sounds almost even like Revelation. Although it's not an exact copy we can hear the apocalyptic style in our lesson from Mark 13, which says, But in those days, after that tribulation, the sun will be darkened, and the moon will not give its light, and the stars will be falling from heaven, and the powers in the heavens will be shaken. Verses 24 and 25. Now, the New Testament writers used apocalyptic style differently than the Jewish writers. The Jewish writers were using it for their purposes. The New Testament writers were using that style for, for other purposes, mainly in reference to Jesus Christ, which makes it very, you know, all, all that different from the Jews. The first part of our reading from the Gospel of Mark is apocalyptic, that first section, you might say the first paragraph, and it is narrative. It's a narrative of the end. So in true apocalyptic style, Jesus says the world will be disrupted. Verse 24, the sun will be darkened. The moon will not give its light. The stars will be falling from heaven. The powers in heaven will be shaken. What is that kind of describing? A disrupted world. 
Then it tells of God sending his servant, Jesus Christ, to judge the world. Verse 26 says, And then they will see the Son of Man coming in clouds with great power and glory. That's language taken from Daniel chapter 7. Daniel says, And behold, with the clouds of heaven there will come one like a Son of Man, and he will come to the Ancient of Days to God the Father, and was presented before him. And to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. Now in Mark, Jesus speaks of the Son of Man coming with great power and glory. He uses that kind of language from Daniel. And it's the power and glory of God. The Son of Man who comes is coming not just in some kind of normal or, or familiar worldly kind of power. He's coming with the great power and glory of God. And it's the power and glory of rule and authority over the whole creation. So we should not misunderstanding, misunderstand what's happening here when the Son of Man comes with this glory and power. It's glory and power with authority to judge the world. In Revelation, the coming of the Son of Man in judgment is made explicit with different apocalyptic language. It, it uses other language, uh, apocalyptic language, but Revelation says it in its own way, talks about the Son of Man coming in judgment. Verse, uh, Revelation 14, verse 14 says, Then I looked, and behold, a white cloud, and seated on the cloud, one like a son of man, with a golden crown on his head and a sharp sickle in his hand. And he is told to put in your sickle and reap, for the hour to reap has come, for the harvest of the earth is fully ripe. Judgment. But in Mark, Jesus' narrative of the end focuses on his redeeming his people. Yes, he's coming in the power and glory of God and there will be judgment, but the focus here is a bit more on him redeeming his people. Jesus says, And then he will send out the angels and gather his elect from the four winds, from the ends of the earth to the ends of heaven. The elect are those who belong to Christ. And in the end... The great end of history, he will gather them up to himself in love and righteousness and blessing. Jesus concludes his apocalyptic narrative with a moral demand to keep awake, to be watchful. And we don't hear that so much as a moral demand. We tend to think of just the straightforward imagery there. You know, someone asleep needs to kind of wake up, be alert kind of a thing. But it's very much a moral kind of statement that he's making. The apocaly- this apocalyptic narrative is not just a story about the end that is to intrigue us or make us ask lots of questions or maybe to entertain us. There is a moral requirement that goes with it. Verse 33 says, Be on guard, keep awake, for you do not know when the time will come. And then Jesus concludes with these words, And what I say to you, I say to all, stay awake. Verse 37. Be watchful, be ready for the coming of the Son of Man in glory and power. And that is a moral response. There's a right and a wrong to it. We must live now according to the end when Jesus comes to judge us and redeem us. Now we have to live that way. There, there is the apocalyptic narrative of Jesus in the Gospel of Mark, and I've just tried to run through it and give you sort of a, a basic understanding of it. Now, to good secular people who live today, Jesus' apocalyptic words sound primitive and ancient, old world. Many people today do not believe in God, and even if there is a God, they believe he is not involved in our world. He's not involved at least like this, like what Jesus is talking about. They think this narrative that Jesus gives that talks about divine disruption, the coming of the Son of Man, the gathering of the elect, is a fantasy, is 
some old world view of, of the universe. Besides, good secular people don't believe in apocalyptic narrative, or do they? Actually, there are many apocalyptic narratives in our world today. And there are religious ones. We Christians still have our apocalyptic narrative as Scripture as Scripture gives it to us. This is a standard reading for the first Sunday of Advent, that the readings we had today, Mark 13 or from one of the other Gospels, that all talk about Christ's second coming. We in the church very much hold to, an, to the apocalyptic narrative of Scripture. Islam also has an apocalyptic narrative. But there are also secular apocalyptic stories that reflect what our society believes. They are in story form, and they're apocalyptic. For instance, the movie World War Z. Now, that may not be your kind of movie. It came out in 2013. Um, it's a very interesting movie, Brad Pitt. Um, it's it's uh, you know, a movie that might be a little too much for the younger ones, but it would be too much for the younger ones. But um, maybe you've seen it. World War Z is a movie which is a form of storytelling. And it's an apocalyptic story about the dangerously near end of the world. And it has its own apocalyptic language about zombie-like infected human beings, catastrophic viruses, and heroes who save humanity. So I looked up the plot, the summary of the plot on uh, IMDb. And this is what it said. A virulent and unprecedented pandemic of global proportions which turns humans into rabid, flesh-eating zombies takes the world by surprise. Under these circumstances, the retired United Nations special agent, Jerry Lane, must leave behind a peaceful family life, a wife and two daughters, to escort a team of scientists on a mission to find a cure navigating through zombie-swarmed cities. However, as the deadly pathogen obliterates entire areas, incessantly giving birth to diseased masses of freshly reanimated undead, the frail hope of finding a viable solution starts drifting away. Jerry travels to different cities only to have to flee them because they become overrun with zombies. On one of his escapes, he takes a flight on which he must fight an infected passenger before the plane crashes at Cardiff, Wales. And it just so happens that this is near a World Health Organization research facility where he creates and tests a camouflage strategy that keeps the zombies from biting uninfected humans. Are you interested? <laughs> Are you going to watch that? I don't know. But there's the story, and that's my point. Underlying this movie are the assumptions and commitments of our society about how humanity might be destroyed. And you know what? It starts to hit pretty close to home after COVID. And, and it also talks about the importance of science. That's all very much part of that, that storyline, that narrative. And it's apocalyptic. It's about the end of the world. Another apocalyptic narrative about the end of the world is concerned with modern technology creating monsters. And this kind of story has been around for quite some time. It's the theme in Mary Shelley's Frankenstein, or the movie I, Robot, and H.G. Wells' The Island of Dr. Moreau. And some of these have been made into movies. The Island of Dr. Moreau was made into a movie several times, but as recently as 1996. And the basic summary of the story there is that a man is rescued after being shipwrecked and brought to an island. And in the H.G. Wells story, the man is named Edward Predick. In the movie, he's named Douglas. <clears throat> and he discovers 
<clears throat> excuse me, that there are strange-looking creatures that are a crossbreed between humans and animals. And it's the work of a visionary doctor named Dr. Moreau, who uses his scientific knowledge to make these human-animal crossovers. And so there, are, there is leopard man, there's dog man, there's boar man, and many other kind of mixes. The movie is set, the movie is set in the year 2010. Dr. Moreau has successfully combined human and animal DNA to make a crossbreed make crossbreed animals. Something goes wrong, and the hero, Douglas, must find uh, must uh, try to stop it before this breaks out and becomes a, a just spreads across the world. And it's it's very much about science. This this movie is the story is even H. G. Wells' story is about very much about science. Douglas, or the, the hero, is affected by the pain and cruelty inflicted by Moreau's science. He's affected by it. He sees the agony, and, the, and these creatures are in agony. He's disturbed by the effects of trauma. And Douglas ends up leaving the island and pursues a better way of science than Dr. Moreau. The basic plot of these kinds of modern apocalyptic stories is that the quest to experiment and make new things may have disastrous results for society. The apocalyptic style is in these stories. They have that apocalyptic style. Disruption of the world, heroes, a moral order, judgment, redemption. And again, the technology creating monsters, those kind of apocalyptic stories reflect and play into the fears that we modern science-driven people have about how the world might end, or at least how it might be wrecked. Just think about our worries about nuclear war. When I grew up, that was a huge concern. We practiced, and I know a lot of you did too, how to duck and cover and get, get out into safe zones if there was a nuclear war with the Soviet Union. Today it's coming back. I'm hearing people talking about that again and worried about it, um, that it might happen. Artificial intelligence, there's a lot of worry about that and what it might do. Gene manipulation. You see, these technology-creating problems are very much in our minds as a, society, as a society. These stories are not, the stories that we hear in our society are not simply for entertainment. I think a lot of us treat them as entertaining, but they're also moral. They are moral. They have moral points to them. Just because we can do something with our technology does not mean that we should do it. That's the kind of moral you'll get in these things. And it raises questions about what is human identity and can it be interfered with? That's a moral question. And is it, is it right to play around with nature? Well, it turns out that apocalyptic narratives are just as common today as they were in the first century. But there's a fundamental difference between the many secular apocalyptic narratives today and the apocalyptic narrative we've heard in the Gospel of Mark. There's a fundamental difference. These uh, modern-day, well, all of the apocalyptic narratives are about cataclysmic disruption of the world. They're all about moral order and redemption. They all have their heroes. The difference is, who is the hero? In the modern secular apocalyptic narratives, the hero is human beings. We are the heroes, or at least some of us. In the movie World War Z, the primary hero is Jerry Lane. He puts this camouflage strategy into place that saves the uninfected humans from the deadly virus. 
In the story, The Island of Dr. Moreau, the hero is Edward Prendick, or Douglas, who is sympathetic to the pain of others and hopefully will help secure a compassionate science. We are the ones who got us into the mess, and we're the ones who can get ourselves out of it. That's who the heroes are, and the hero is in this story, these stories. But in the Gospel of Mark, the hero is God and his son, Jesus Christ. God sends his son, Jesus Christ, into the world. That's the hero. Listen again to the beginning of it, starting at verse 24. But in those days, after that tribulation, the sun will be darkened, and the moon will not give its light, and the stars will be falling from heaven, and the powers in the heavens will be shaken. And then they will see the Son of Man coming in clouds with great power and glory. And then he will send out the angels and gather his elect from the four winds, from the ends of the earth to the ends of heaven. Jesus is the Son of Man who is the hero of this apocalyptic narrative. And that makes all the difference who the hero is. There's a problem when we make ourselves the hero in the modern apocalyptic stories or narratives. There's nothing wrong with wanting to take action and try to stop deadly viruses or fighting for a science that does not run amok, ignoring the trauma that it can cause to pregnant women, children, and adults who are confused about their identity and making bombs that indiscriminately kill millions of people. We're right to pursue a better world. If we're following Jesus Christ, we are not trying to make the world a place full of violence and broken families and dead children and racial hatred. But here's the problem. We're the same ones who cause the problems in the world. We've all heard the reports of what the Hamas, Hamas militants did to civilians in Israel and there are also some reports of what happened to Palestinian civilians when the Israel Defense Force hit back. We also hear continually about the war in Ukraine. Is it human beings causing, it is human beings causing this, these disruptions of war and violence in the world. And if the war and violence spreads, we'll be looking at an apocalyptic end to human history, kind of like what Cormac McCarthy depicts in his novel, The Road. That's us. Human beings moving the world towards its demise. Human beings experiment with deadly pathogens, and we make them deadlier. Some of these have been used in warfare, such as when Iraq attacked Iran and Syria's assault on its own people. There are serious concerns about these viruses and bacteria escaping and decimating the human population, and we have experienced those concerns. That is human beings doing this. And we are the ones who have polluted the earth with gases and toxins and other pollutants that have ruined many places in this world, water, atmosphere, causing destruction that affects really the entire world. My daughter lives near a toxic Superfund site in Pennsylvania where they once processed uranium ore. It's now a huge covered dome, and I always think about that. Yeah, they've covered it, and you know, I'm sure they did their best job with it, but is it really safe? Will it ever leak? A majority of the rivers in Europe are polluted with chemicals and have already started, it's already started to lead to ecological disasters, so they're trying to work on that. Humans have done this with their careless disregard for the environment. And on and on it goes. Humanity accomplishes some truly great things, but for every good thing, we also produce ruin and devastation. We do both. 
But we might think that it's only some human beings who do this. Only some wage war, harm others, pollute the earth, make the technology that destroys people's lives and spread deadly viruses. Yet each one of us plays a part in the new ways that humanity creates that might lead to apocalyptic disaster. We do play our part. We use the technology that's invented for good things, but it can also do terrible things. And an example of this, I think, is the smartphone. The technology that made our iPhones and Androids also is used to exploit women and children, to make improvised explosive devices, and has increased isolation and alienation in society. You see, humanity is caught in a vortex of improving our world and destroying it. And it is more than a problem of needing more knowledge or technology. It's a problem with who we are. We are self-centered. We trust ourselves to solve the world's problem. And most of all, we're sinners. What's interesting about the secular apocalyptic stories is they never bring God into it. And if, if there's any sort of a religious reference, it might show people praying. But the hero in these stories is never God. It's us. It's humanity. The message is we can rescue ourselves from the end of the world. But how can that be when we are people who cause the cataclysmic disasters as well as try to stop them? Okay, maybe we'll stop this pathogen from spreading across the world, but then we create another one, and it gets out, and it does that. So what kind of a hero are we? The hero of the gospel apocalyptic narrative is Jesus Christ. He's the Son of Man coming in clouds with glory and power. And this apocalyptic narrative includes God in it. I mean, you all knew that. And it's not just, he's not just included as a secondary actor, but as the hero. He's the hero of the narrative. Jesus Christ comes to judge the world, the whole world, all of humanity, every single one of us. He will sift through what is right and what is wrong. And what is wrong he will bring to light, and those who, are, who do the wrong will be condemned. Because everything in this world has been tainted by sin and, is wrong, and has wrong mixed with it, he will judge everything and everyone and set things right. He will transform this world from the old world of sin and destruction into the new world of peace and righteousness and love and justice gathered around God in praise and thanksgiving. And even now, Jesus Christ, before he comes again, because he has come the first time, is transforming people to have faith in him and follow him as the one who delivers us from the apocalyptic destruction of the world. The apocalyptic narrative of the gospel of Jesus Christ is not just about God and human history, it's moral. So we can't just hear this and, and include God in the, in the story or our understanding of how things come to their end. There's a moral, there, there's morality with this. Jesus concludes our lesson from Mark by saying, Be on guard, keep awake, for you do not know when the time will come. And then he gives the analogy of the master of a house who goes on a journey and leaves his servants to be busy at work running his household. One of them is the designated doorkeeper who watches for the master to return. He must be ready at all times, doing his job, because he doesn't know which day his master will return. All he knows is that he will. The kind of alertness that Jesus is talking about is not sitting back and doing nothing, just staring out into the horizon until the last minute. It's not the last minute kind of readiness, uh, just sitting there watching. 
It's not like a husband whose wife goes away on a trip and he neglects the duties of the house, hoping to clean it all up before she walks through the door. Trust me, that doesn't work. The kind of alertness that Jesus is talking about is active. It's busy at work. It is doing the things he tells us to be doing before he returns. What he requires of us is moral. There's a right and a wrong to it. There's a right way to be actively alert before he returns, and there's a wrong way to be alert. As his disciples, there are things we should be doing and things we should not be doing. One of the things that we're to be doing is inviting people to commit to Jesus being the true hero of our salvation and the redemption at the end of history. There's quite a buzz right now about Hirsi Ali Ayan. We, I brought her up, um, I think it was last week, in the um, uh, Christian ed class. She's a Somali woman who was raised Muslim but left Somalia and became an atheist. She recently, uh, just recently, she announced that she has become a Christian and is joining the church. She's a very bright person. She's an intellectual. She relates uh, all of that to her Christian faith, and she has come to believe that Christian faith um, in the clash of civilizations in this world between Islam, secularism, Christianity, she, she believes that the Christian faith is really the only one that will um, lead to a good end. She admits that she has much to learn, but she's convinced that the only hope for human life is Christianity. Atheism is becoming unsatisfying for many people. She's not the only one. If you go online and look, you'll find Christian uh, talk like podcasts or, or uh, talk sessions, talking to people who used to be atheists. And some of them might be, could be a little corny, but some of them are, are very well done. The new atheism movement began in the 1980s. So there's always been some atheism, but there's this new atheism that began in the 1980s, and it, it took on a much more aggressive uh, uh, stance towards Christianity. In England, there's a Christian named Justin Byerly, I think he's Anglican, and he has a podcast called Re-Enchanting. And for many years, he's had conversations with various new atheist leaders. Uh, he's, he's respected, and they're willing to sit down and talk with him. And recently, he's noticed a change happening. People once attracted to atheism are finding that Christianity gives more purpose, more meaning, more intelligibility, more hope for life. Right now, there is a newfound interest in the Christian faith. And this is exciting. As we Christians begin to hear about this, there are a lot, of, that, that's why there's a buzz about Hirsi Ali Ayan. The Christians are buzzing about that. It's exciting. It's exciting in, in Christianity. Uh, people are finding this interest, interest in the Christian faith. The Christian faith is a thinking faith, to borrow a phrase from Byerly. Most of us will not be doing what Byerly is doing, but as we encounter people with a new interest in Christianity, and I think you're going to be encountering more of them, and we help them understand how it makes sense of the world and how it is reasonable, we also want them to know that Jesus Christ is the true hero of our redemption and commit to him. It's not just to know that Christianity is all these reasonable, intelligent, purposeful things. It's to know that he's the true hero and we're to commit to him because our society is presenting a lot of other heroes to, to the world. 
Christianity opens up the beauty of what God has done. It is intelligent. It gives purpose to our life. It makes life worth living. But to be a Christian is to commit ourselves to Jesus Christ as the true hero of the world who saves us from catastrophe with God. Jesus is the true hero. The heroes in our secular age are daring and flashy, but they're not the true hero for this world. So I don't have any problem with you watching. uh, I'm not trying to tell you you can't watch secular uh, apocalyptic type movies. Um, I've seen some of them too. But always remember, and especially you who are younger, stop and think who they're telling you the, the hero is. And that person may be doing some heroic things, but they're not the true hero. The true hero is Jesus Christ. The heroes of this world are caught up in causing the problems in this world as much as they're trying to avert them. And some of the best apocalyptic movies show that, that the hero is a flawed hero. All of us are caught up in that vortex of sin and catastrophe. Jesus is the only hero who comes from outside the world into it. See, that's what we're, we're all about celebrating on Christmas Day, the incarnation, the birth of Christ. Jesus is not trapped in sin and God's judgment like we are. He does not cause the wrong that we need to be delivered from. Jesus is God who is holy and righteousness, pure and uncorrupted by sin, and therefore he doesn't cause or perpetuate the wrong that's done in this world. He is the true hero. He is the real redeemer. Jesus is the Son of Man who comes to gather his elect from the east and from the west, from the north and the south, for redemption. People will hear the modern secular apocalyptic stories with their heroes, but we must trust Jesus to be the true hero and invite everyone to do the same. Let us pray. Almighty God, give us grace that we may cast away the works of darkness and faithfully follow Jesus Christ, the Son of Man, who came to visit us in great humility in order to deliver us from our captivity to sin, so that in the last day, when he shall come again in his glorious majesty to judge both the living and the dead, we may be gathered to him in the redemption of this world, who lives and reigns with you in the Holy Spirit, one God, forever and ever. Amen. Please stand and let us confess our faith with the creed in the bulletin. We believe in one God, the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, of all things visible and invisible, and in one Lord Jesus Christ, the only begotten Son of God, begotten of his Father before all worlds, God of God, light of light, very God of very God, begotten, not made, being of one substance with the Father, through whom all things were made, who for us and for our salvation came down from heaven and was incarnate by the Holy Spirit of the Virgin Mary and was made man, and was crucified also for us under Pontius Pilate. He suffered and was buried, and the third day he rose again according to the scriptures and ascended into heaven and is seated at the right hand of the Father. And he shall come again with glory to judge both the living and the dead, whose kingdom shall have no end. And we believe in the Holy Spirit, the Lord and giver of life, who proceeds from the Father and the Son, who with the Father and the Son together is worshipped and glorified, who spoke by the prophets. And we believe in one holy, catholic, and apostolic church. We acknowledge one baptism for the remission of sins, 
and we look for the resurrection of the dead and the life of the world to come. Amen. Our hymn is the insert, the advent of our King. joyful feast of the people of God, men and women will come from east and west and from north and south and sit at table in the kingdom of God. Given what we just heard from the gospel lesson about Christ returning and gathering his elect from the ends of the earth and heaven, we hear that he's already beginning to do that in a way. It's not that the second coming has happened, but, but there's already that gathering going on. We just heard that as part of this communion meal. Hear the institution of this meal. As they were eating, Jesus took bread and blessed and broke it and gave it to them, to his disciples, and said, Take, this is my body. And he took a cup, and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, and they all drank of it. And he said to them, This is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many. Truly I say to you, I shall not drink again of the fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it new in the kingdom of God. Thus, this is the Lord's table. He invites us to feast with him. Those who come to this holy meal promise to trust and love and obey him as the Lord of every realm of life and to live in love and concern for each other. All who have been baptized, who have publicly professed their faith in Jesus Christ and are communicant members of a Christian church or belong to a Christian church are welcome to come and share in this joyful feast of our Lord. Join with me in giving thanks to God for his salvation and life for us in Jesus Christ. The Lord be with you. And also with you. Lift up your hearts. We lift them up to the Lord. Let us give thanks to the Lord our God. It is right to give you thanks and praise. It is indeed right and good to give you thanks and praise, Almighty God and everlasting Father, through Jesus Christ your Son. The words of the prophets 
you promised the Redeemer and gave hope for the day when the people who walk in darkness would see a great light. For you sent your Son to us, who humbled himself and came among us in human flesh. He fulfilled the plan you formed before the foundation of the world to open for us the way of salvation. Confident that your promise will be fulfilled, we now watch for the day when Christ our Lord will come again in glory. And so we join our voices with the hosts of heaven who are praising you, saying, Holy, 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 Lord God of hosts, heaven and earth are full of your glory. Glory be to you, O Lord Most High. All glory be to you, Almighty God, our Heavenly Father, who of your tender mercy did give your only Son, Jesus Christ, to suffer death upon the cross for our redemption, who made there by his offering of himself a full, perfect, and sufficient sacrifice, an offering and satisfaction for the sin of the world. And he did institute and in his holy gospel command us to continue a perpetual memory of that his his precious death until he comes again. Hear us, O merciful Father, we most humbly ask you, and grant that by the power of your Holy Spirit, we receiving these, your creatures of bread and the cup, according to your Son, our Savior, Jesus Christ's holy institution, in remembrance of his body, of his death and passion, may be, by faith, partakers of his most blessed body and blood. Through Jesus Christ our Lord, by whom and with whom and in whom, in the unity of the Holy Spirit, all honor and glory be unto you, O Father Almighty, world without end. We offer our prayer and our thanksgiving with one voice, saying, Amen. The Lord Jesus Christ took the bread, and after giving thanks, he broke it, said, This is my body given for you, do this in remembrance of me. And he also took the cup, saying, This cup is the cup of the new covenant, sealed in my blood, shed for you for the forgiveness of sins. As often as you drink it, do this in remembrance of me.
Jesus said, I am the vine, you are the branches. Apart from me, you can do nothing. Take and eat this bread and drink this cup and remember Christ's body and blood given for you. Receive it with faith and thanksgiving. Take and eat and drink. Let us pray. Christ, the Son of Righteousness, we ask, O Lord, would shine upon us, and by His grace make us watchful and keep us faithful as we await the coming of Your Son, our Lord, that when He shall appear, He may not find us sleeping in sin, but active in His service and joyful in His praise. Through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. Final hymn is number 196, Come Thou Long Expected Jesus.
scatter the darkness before your path. They make you ready to meet him when he comes in glory. And the blessing of God the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit be upon you all now and forever. Amen. Good morning. Uh, let's take a look at the items in our bulletin insert. Uh, today, of course, we will be having our fellowship meal, our kind of our Christmas brunch, rather than or in place of our Christian education class. So please join us for that time together um, after announcements and the ladies are able to sort of put things together. We'll will join for the meal. And have the women's prayer meeting coming up on Thursday, December 4th at the Roberts home, 9 a.m. I'm sorry, 14th. Friday evening prayer, December 15th. 6.30 at the church. Do we, is our, we discussed in our session meeting yesterday, we discussed a date for our congregational meeting coming up in January. I wondered if I might. You can. We didn't list the We didn't list it. Okay. Right. I think the 21st. I believe so. Yeah, that will be for the purpose of um, approving the budget, electing officers, and um, just wanted to let you know about that. And of course, there's I'm I'm riffing here, but there's the Christmas Eve service coming up, so think about that. The lessons and carols, the readings. Anything else? Jail this, this Friday. Okay, men going to the jail this Friday evening. Pray for them. And for those men who will um, hear the gospel. Is today Red Sweater Day? Not necessarily. Oh, okay. It's it's uh, it is a Christmas brunch. Oh. <laughs> so you have that freedom, that Christian liberty here at Providence to dress in this fashion. It's a good thing you can taste, though. Okay. All right, folks, let's dismiss.